2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Short book, it's an easy, it's easy to kind of pass it by before you notice it. But we're going to be reading the first 12 verses. Paul says, Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us, to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first. And the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? And you know what is restraining him now, so that he may be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refused to love the truth and be saved. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. For the past several weeks, I have been preaching, Pastor Brian and I actually together, a series of sermons that I've entitled Be Prepared, which are looking at passages of Scripture that relate to what we often call the end times. We began our study several weeks ago in Matthew chapter 24 with what is commonly called the Olivet Discourse. You remember uh, the disciples and Jesus were at the temple, And uh, as they left the temple, the disciples asked Jesus the question, as he told about how all of uh, the the temple would be destroyed and that Jerusalem would ultimately be destroyed. And they wanted to know, when will these things be? And so after they had uh, gone uh, through the Kidron Valley and gone up on the other side to the Mount of Olives, Jesus sat them down and he began to instruct them about those things. But as we noticed, um, as we looked at Matthew chapter 24, and of course, uh, just to remind you that uh, um, that is just one of the places where this is located. Mark and Luke also record the Olivet Discourse. But what we noticed as we looked there is that Jesus doesn't really answer the question that they ask. They ask a when question. When will these things be? And Jesus doesn't really answer that question. Instead, the overwhelming emphasis in his response is that because we cannot predict when his return would come, It is absolutely essential that we be prepared for it to happen 
at any time. And that really is why I've entitled this series, Be Prepared, right? And uh, what the core is, uh, the lesson that we, ha- that we can take away, especially from Matthew 24 and 25. And Pastor Brian spoke from Matthew um, 25 last week, um, three parables that relate to the urgency of being prepared, the parable of the ten virgins, the parable of the talents, and also the parable of separating the sheep and the goats. And today, I have chosen this passage from Paul's second letter to the Thessalonians as our text. And I will just warn you ahead of time that the consensus, pretty broad consensus among biblical scholars, is that this is one of the most difficult passages in Scripture to understand and to interpret. Yeah, isn't that exciting? (laughs) And for that reason, there are all kinds of different perspectives and interpretations that have been offered by uh, a wide range of uh, well-respected Bible scholars, and and I respect that. And so it's also for that reason that we need to approach this passage with humility, recognizing that uh, whatever one might say or whatever I might say, there are any number of scholars who would disagree and would give good evidence why their their perspective is, is better than the one that I'm going to offer you today. Um, and it's also for that reason that I've been kicking myself all week, thinking, why on earth did I decide to choose to uh, preach on this passage? You're brave. <laughs> well, nevertheless... We really can't undertake a study of what the Bible says about the end times and ignore this passage because just because it's difficult to understand. Um, Certainly is tempting for me as a pastor to choose passages that are easy to understand. (laughs) But uh, we can't ignore this one if we're going to do a study of what, what Scripture has to say to us about the end times. So it's with a great deal of dependence on the Holy Spirit for spiritual discernment that I stand before you today, and I encourage you, let's listen together for what God has to say to us through Paul's instruction to the Thessalonians. And as we do so, I want to remind you of a couple of principles that uh, I've already mentioned as we've made our beginning uh, steps into this series um, that really should guide us as we study this passage and really um, all the different passages that, that, we, that we have in Scripture that relate to these things. And the first principle is one that I have borrowed from Alistair Begg, who says, reminds us that in Scripture, the main things are the plain things, and the plain things are the main things. The main things are the plain things, and the plain things are the main things. And we'll find that to be true again this morning. The second is that I have mentioned on several occasions that there is a pattern in prophecy that we can often see And that is that there are often three layers of fulfillment in biblical prophecy. There is a historical layer where we can see fulfillment that has taken place in the past. 
There is an ongoing layer of fulfillment where we can see that throughout history and even in our own time, we think, see things happening that reflect and that, uh, that, 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 that are shaped by those prophetic words. And then there is also a future ultimate fulfillment, what uh, we in theology refer to as eschatological fulfillment, relating to the end, eschatology. Um, and we can see that pattern here in what Paul has to say as well. So let's look at the uh, first three verses here in Second Thessalonians chapter 2, um, which offers us, provides us the background to what Paul has to say. Um, Thessalonica seems to have been uh, particularly anxious, the Christians there, um, about the questions that relate to the end times and to Christ's return. And uh, one of the things that Paul says, he says this actually in 1 Thessalonians, is that he had taught them about these things when he was with them. And he implies that in this passage here as well. And if you read both what Paul says in 1 Thessalonians and what he says here, it's pretty evident that the, the, the foundation, the, the foundational information from which Paul taught the Thessalonians was in fact the Olivet Discourse, which we had studied from Matthew chapter 24. But as we found uh, ourselves a couple of weeks ago when we looked there, um, Paul's instruction had left the Thessalonians with as many questions as answers. And in 1 Thessalonians 4, Paul addresses what seems to have been a concern that they had for their loved ones who had already passed away. And they wondered, would their loved ones miss out on the return of Christ because they had died before Christ had returned? And that was a question that, that they had. And Paul, Paul addressed it with them and assured them, remember in 1 Thessalonians 4, that in fact when Christ does return, the dead will rise first and then all who are living will also join them to, be, to meet with Christ in the air. And here in this passage, there seems to have been a rumor going around, and you'll notice that as you look at verses 1 through 3, or some kind of teaching that uh, the day of the Lord had already occurred, that Christ had already come, or that the, um, the, 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 the things of the end were already upon them. And this had upset and confused the Thessalonians all over again. And now perhaps they wondered not only if their, their deceased loved ones had missed out, but maybe they had missed out on the return of Christ. And so Paul responded to their concerns in verse 3 by assuring them that they had not missed out because two things must occur first. And those two things are what Paul, Paul calls the rebellion. The, uh, the Greek word is apostasia, which is the word that uh, we get apostasy from, turning away, and that the man of lawlessness would be revealed. These two things, Paul says, need to happen first. And really, again, we can see reflections of what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 24. There would be a great, a time of great tribulation and lawlessness, and Jesus warned of that. 
and also what Jesus called the abomination of desolation, quoting from Daniel, the prophet Daniel, um, who would desecrate the temple. And that one of the effects of that would be widespread deception that would divide those who truly believe from those who don't. And Pastor Brian touched on that in his sermon last week with the parable of the sheep and the goats, that part of the day of the Lord is a reckoning. There is a dividing that will take place between those who believe and those who don't. And all of those things are present here in what Paul says, but they're also present in what Jesus says in Matthew um, 24. And remember what Jesus says at the end of that. He says, immediately after the tribulation of those days, he would return. So here in this passage, Paul is instructing the Thessalonians about these things. And uh, um, notice now in verses 4 through 8, Paul talks about the man of lawlessness. Um, And most scholars would agree that this name that Paul uses, the man of lawlessness, is probably a name for the same person that Daniel called the abomination that causes desolation, and Jesus used that name as well. Um, John, the Apostle John, in, in his first letter, in 1 John, uses the name the Antichrist, and many of us are familiar with that name as well. And in Revelation chapter 13, the name is the beast, and probably those names all refer to this same individual. Paul says he will oppose every so-called God or object of worship. So, in other words, it won't just be Christianity that he will oppose, but religion in general, or the idea of God in general. He will be a ruthless promoter of atheism. And rather than promoting the belief in God or religion, he will proclaim himself to be God. And as Paul says here, set himself up on a throne in the temple. Paul is, uh, this is just an aside, but Paul is probably writing before the destruction of Jerusalem as well, so that may be a reference um, to uh, the invasion and destruction of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple. That may be a reference there. Others have uh, concluded that the temple may need to be rebuilt before any of these things can happen. That's a view that's out there that probably some of you are familiar with. Um, I personally am inclined to see it figuratively, at least in terms of what still lies ahead, to refer to opposition to God and the offense that that kind of thing would be to the holiness and the sovereignty of God. Regardless, I think it's important that we keep an open mind as we, again, think about the things that we can't fully um, nail down. The point is that he will promote himself as the only legitimate object of worship. I am God. He will also be a promoter of disorder and anarchy. He is called the man of lawlessness. 
So in a sense, the things that society depends on to function, such as justice and law and order, will be rejected and replaced with a new law, which really is the opposite of law, the law of lawlessness, so to speak. And in verse 9, Paul tells us that ultimately it is Satan that is behind this man, the energy of Satan. And he will set him up as a false savior. People will turn to him as a savior. And he will be a false savior, complete with his own brand of miracles and wonders. Verses 6 through 7 say this, Paul says, You know what is restraining him now, so that he may be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. In other words, these things are already happening. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. Clear as mud, right? But what Paul is talking about is that this man at present, this man who will initiate this period of upheaval, is being held back until the proper time. And Paul doesn't tell us who or what is holding all of this back. Paul says to the Thessalonians, wouldn't you like to know? Because he says to them, you know what is restraining him now. So probably he must have talked about this to them at a previous meeting. But he assumes they already know. And so he doesn't need to tell them. And what does that mean? God doesn't think we need to know. Right? So we don't know. And all kinds of theories have been presented. And I'm not going to go through them with you now. Um, But it's interesting, I think, that um, the emphasis here is that he is being restrained until the proper time. Because God has a plan for history. And God is using the evil intent of human beings, inspired by the evil one. He is using even that to weave into history his purpose, his sovereign plan to bring about his glory. And the thing I think that ought to strike us as we think about what Paul says here, that this this man and the period of upheaval that he will initiate is being restrained. The thing that ought to strike us is that as bad as this world is, and if you think about it, as bad as the horrors of the Holocaust or the horrors of the Cambodian killing fields or the Cultural Revolution in China or Stalin's reign of terror, as bad as those things were, they are evil restrained. They are evil restrained by God's gracious hand. God has been holding back the tide of evil. But the day is coming when the restraint will be removed and all of Satan's fury will be poured out through the lawless one and his reign of terror. 
verses 10 through 12, Paul tells us about the impact that this will have. And notice that when Paul talks here, he does not talk about violence, though I'm sure it will be violent. And he doesn't talk about oppression, though I'm sure that it will be oppressive. Instead, what Paul emphasizes is deception. Deception. Satan's work through the lawless one will be to deceive those who have not loved the truth, Paul says. So the lawless one, and this is, I think, an important thing for us to recognize, the lawless one will not be secured in his power by cruelty and fear, though I'm sure there will be plenty of that. But people will follow him because they have been deceived, so that wrong will be considered right, and right will be considered wrong. And truth will be considered falsehood. And falsehood will be considered truth. And the end result will be social upheaval on a scale the world has not yet seen. Violence and oppression and exploitation and deception. Aren't you glad you came today? It's a pretty grim picture, isn't it? How many of you are confused? I am a little bit. Yeah, it's, it's hard to take all of it in and to know all the things that Paul has to say and to understand them. And it's pretty sobering to think that as dark as this world is and the horrible things that have happened even in recent history, that if what Paul has to say still lies ahead of us, then the darkest days of the world are yet ahead. So what are we to make of all of this? And how is it supposed to help us with what we are facing in our lives right now? There is much here that is difficult and if not impossible to understand and As I said, there are many, many different perspectives. There are those who would suggest that what Paul says here has actually already happened with the Roman Empire and the fall of Rome and that those things are part of history, not the future. And there are those who believe, as has been popularized by the book series Left Behind, that the church, in fact, will be taken out of the world by the rapture before these things happen. And others believe that these aren't really reflections of history at all, but instead they are a metaphor for the spiritual struggles that we all face in life. And there are other perspectives as well. I'm just naming a few. As I look at this, one of the things that strikes me is how much information we aren't given. And Christians through the ages, which is our, you know, we are tempted to do it, Christians through the ages have sought to fill in the gaps of the information that we aren't given. In the early church, uh, the early believers understandably saw Rome as 
the reflection of what Paul says here. And several Roman empires were, in fact, good candidates for the Antichrist. During the Crusades, Muhammad and Islam were seen to be the fulfillment of this. During the Reformation, it was the Roman Catholic Church and the papacy that was understood to fulfill this. And, of course, in more recent times, we can think of things like Stalin and Hitler and so forth. I was at a, uh, I, I was visiting a church some years ago, and they happened to be to have a special speaker there that day who was speaking about prophecy, and he was telling everybody that it was the European Union and Tony Blair that was the fulfillment of this. And we can certainly look around us and see things happening that look very much like what Paul described. We can see it in the rise of atheism and secular humanism around the world. We can see it in the many totalitarian dictators who have done and are still doing their best <clears throat> excuse me, to stamp out religion and to establish themselves as the ones to be worshipped. Do you ever notice that in the... In, in the news reports of different places where religion and um, religion is oppressed. But what do you have? You have the image of the premier that is hung in every classroom so that everybody sees that image of that man and worships it. We can see it in the rampant culture of consumerism that worships things. And that deceives people into believing that material objects can fill the emptiness in our lives. We can see it in the rapid breakdown of law and order in our society in the name of justice. And the growing number of leaders who are voicing their approval of what's happening. And we see that happening right now. We can see it in the moral confusion that has turned the protection of the unborn into an offense against women. And increasingly, where wrong is right and right is wrong with regard to sex and marriage and family and gender identity and justice and many, many other things. I was having a conversation with my son. I may have mentioned this. I know I've mentioned it in Sunday school classes, but... um, regarding the university and the climate in the university right now. And his sense as he talks to different people and is aware of what's happening there is that in general in the university, if you are not questioning your gender, something is wrong with you. That's a scary thing. Right is wrong. Wrong is right. We can see it in the fact that many professing Christians have followed the world down this path rather than standing firm on the authority of Christ and his word. Past fulfillment, ongoing fulfillment, ultimate fulfillment. The man of lawlessness has made his mark on the pages of history with the many tyrants that have embodied the spirit of Antichrist. And the spirit of Antichrist is alive and well in our time. And yet, 
as John Stott, another respected Bible scholar, points out, there will come a day when the final man of lawlessness to which all the other antichrists ultimately point will be revealed, and he will unleash evil, the like of which the current spirit of antichrist is only a foreshadowing. Is this the time? I don't know. Is the Antichrist alive today? I don't know. The answers to those questions are as difficult to discern today as they were when the first questions, when the first Christians wrestled with them. And Really, the same thing is true of us that is true of the disciples, right? We ask the when questions, and Jesus gives us a different kind of answer. Scripture does not give us enough information to answer the when questions definitively. Instead, it leads us back again to Jesus' words. No one, not even the angels or the Son of Man, knows the day or the hour. So be prepared. Be prepared. The main things are the plain things. And the plain things are the main things. So what are the main things? What instruction does Scripture clearly give us as we wrestle with so many questions about the end times? First of all, what I would suggest is that we have here in what Paul says, a warning to the complacent. A day of reckoning is coming. A day of testing is coming. And many will not stand the test. They will be deceived. They will be led astray. Secondly, What Paul offers us here is encouragement for the faithful. Warning for the complacent and encouragement for the faithful. And if you look back actually at prophecy throughout history, throughout the Old Testament, these two things are always there. Warning for the complacent, encouragement for the faithful. Paul reminds us, even here in this passage, that God is in control of history and nothing is going to happen until God says that it will. Not only does God know what is going to happen, but everything is part of his plan. And Paul reminds us that the true king, the true Christ, will return. And when he does, and I love this expression, he will destroy the lawless one with the breath of his mouth. There is no force of evil that can take us out of his hand. Ours is to be faithful and to trust. And not only is Christ our returning king, but he is also our example. And Paul tells us here 
that while on the surface this may look like political stuff, it is not political, it's spiritual. We do not fight the battles of flesh and blood. We fight a spiritual battle. And we must not fight with the weapons the world uses, the weapons of power and manipulation and anger and divisiveness. The real battle is in our hearts to give Christ control so that our conduct reflects the character of the one who fought against the forces of evil with humility and grace and choosing not to raise his hand. Do you think, think about the, the story of the Gospels as Christ is being led to the cross. How many opportunities did he have to go? And yet he chose not to. And there is power. Because he knew he had all power. So he had no need to defend himself. His father had him in the palm of his hand. And no one could do anything to him. And it's that confidence that our power lies in. That the battle is already settled. We don't need to defend ourselves. We simply need to be faithful. Thirdly, we must be about the work that Jesus has left us to do. And I mentioned that a couple weeks ago, so I won't dwell on it today. But our task is to declare the kingdom. The kingdom has come in Christ. And our task, the task that Jesus has left us with, is to invite people to be reconciled to God, for, to, to become followers of Jesus, to move from the darkness into the light, so that they are not deceived, but they are prepared for this coming day. The fact that we can't predict the timing of these things doesn't mean that we ought not to be watchful. And I mentioned that a couple weeks ago as well. Indeed, we must be watchful. We must consider the times and take heed of the ongoing work of deception that continually threatens us as God's people. James Kushner, who is the editor of a magazine that Sharon Sharon and I get, some of you may have heard of it, it's called Touchstone Magazine, wrote an article recently um, in which he um, reminded um, his readers of something that C.S. Lewis had said in his book, The Abolition of Man, back in 1955 when Lewis was writing. And as Lewis observed in his own time, he was observing the rise of socialism in England. And he foresaw the possibility of a time when a class of people that he called conditioners would take it upon themselves to reconstruct the human conscience in order to effect what they deemed as necessary reforms. So we're not going to impose this on you. We're going to change the way you think about what's right and wrong. And that's how we're going to accomplish what we need to accomplish. 
This is what Lewis says. He says, they know how to produce conscience and decide what kind of conscience they will produce. They consider themselves above the dictates they impose on society, and yet they consider themselves the servants and guardians of humanity. Prophetic. Kushner observes that the rise of the Internet and our dependence on it has provided unprecedented power for the conditioners to punish those who spread what they deem hateful ideas and to reward those who get in line. And we can see it. Um, The cancel culture, a name we're learning about. Imposing restrictions on companies that don't comply and public shame through the Internet of those who not only, are you noticing this? The public shame of people, not just who disagree, but people who aren't radical in their beliefs enough to satisfy. Kushner calls this, and the increasing state control over more and more aspects of our lives, he calls this soft totalitarianism. Because it's not won by violence. It's won by deception. Whether this is an indication that the last days are arriving at their climax, again, I don't know. But these are certainly ominous days. And we ought not to bury our heads in the sand and assume that our prosperity and our easy way of life is going to return when this pandemic is over. I don't know what's going to happen, and I hope it. I hope prosperity does return and some sense of sanity returns. But we need to be prepared for the very real possibility that it won't. If you ask my wife, I think she will tell you I'm not an alarmist. I have... Uh, Uh, repeated to her many times, let's not react until we have more information. (laughs) Right? (laughs) But I am also, as a pastor, aware of God's indictment of the false prophets in the Old Testament who God says, you preach peace, peace, when there is no peace. We must take heed regardless of what time it is, we must take heed to what is happening around us. The urgency of preparing ourselves to stand firm in difficult days cannot be overstated. We ought to have been prepared all the time if we were being obedient to what Jesus said, right? But now that we see where things are going, we must take heed. We must be lovers of the truth and hold fast to the word of truth so that we are not deceived. And we must brace ourselves against the intense pressure that may well come to abandon our faith and our hope in Jesus Christ. We must be now bracing ourselves. I remember when I played rugby 
I remember one time I actually was playing for for Columbus, the city of Columbus, and we came up to Detroit to play a rugby game against Detroit. And I was standing there as the other team got the ball, and this guy was running at me, and I thought I was prepared, and he just literally ran right over me. <laughs> if you're going to stand, you got to brace yourself. you got to be intentional. You can't assume that it's going to happen when the time comes. you got to be ready. So I leave you with this. The writer to the Hebrews reminds us in Hebrews chapter 11 of the many, many faithful men and women of God who faced all kinds of hardship and difficulty and persecution in their day. And he says, these are a cloud of witnesses that testify to us through their own trials that God is faithful that he can be trusted. And so the writer to the Hebrews says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, so we know many of them, but how many of them have been lost in the pages of history, and yet they have demonstrated by their faith that God is faithful. Let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. who for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising its shame. And is now seated at the right hand of God. And just as God set a joy before him, he has set a joy before us. Our hope is in no man. Our hope is in the eternal God. And he will bring us safely through. Ours is to be faithful, to be prepared. Amen? Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you so much for your faithfulness and how through the ages you have demonstrated your faithfulness time and time and time again. You have been working since day one to restore all things, to reverse the curse of sin, to reconcile men and women to yourself, to make for yourself a faithful people will be what you created us to be and do what you created us to do. And you are still at work in spite of what we see around us. Father, by your spirit, help us to keep our eyes on Jesus. To run with endurance the race that is set before us. And to be done with those things that hinder us. Strengthen us, we pray. For what we don't understand, strengthen us with what we do understand. We give you the praise and the glory in Jesus' name.